Hey everybody, welcome to Talking Scripture, a podcast where we illustrate relevance and application of the scriptures in Come Follow Me. We also dive into the history and cultures of the text. Thanks for taking the time to share and subscribe to this podcast. For show notes, head over to our website, TalkingScripture.org. Welcome to Talking Scripture, I'm Mike. And I'm Bryce. And today we're going to talk about Mosiah 18 through 24. We're going to get almost everyone home. Not everyone, but we're going to almost get everyone home. So we've had a lot of journeys, and we've scattered all over, and now we're going to start to bring everyone home. What's going on in these six chapters in a brief overview? Alma 18 is Alma preaching in private. He's left Wicked King Noah's presence, and he's out with a few people. About 200 people are there listening to him. And Alma knows who Abinadi is, and he's trying to teach him about Jesus. And so that's Alma 18, and he has to flee from the presence of the king. And the 19th chapter talks about King Noah and how the people see who he is and the whole conflict there with Gideon. The 20th chapter is the Lamanite daughters being abducted. So some of the priests of Noah leave, and in the 20th chapter they abduct some of the Lamanite daughters, and that causes a huge misunderstanding between the Nephites led by Limhi and the Lamanites. And so there's a big war in the 20th chapter. And the 21st chapter is the chapter that talks about the people of Limhi keep doing the same thing over and over again, and they keep attacking the Lamanites, and that doesn't work out well for them. The 22nd chapter is about the plans for escape, where Limhi and his people say, hey, we've got to get out of here, and Ammon shows them the way out, and they do. They make it out. And then the 23rd and the 24th chapter is the deliverance of Alma and his people. And so in the 23rd chapter, Alma has a small group of people, and they have a settlement, but then one of King Noah's wicked priests is kind of their persecutor, and he's and there's this political stuff happening, these machinations between the Lamanites and the little colony of Alma's people, and, and they're subjugated to them, but eventually in the 24th chapter, they're delivered. So that's the big picture. Like Bryce said, we have multiple deliverances, and we have the undoing of King Noah, and that's basically what's going on in these six chapters in a brief overview. So Bryce, why don't you take on some of these things that you would find are important in Mosiah 18 through 24. Let's start with the sad reality of Noah blindness. We've been talking a lot about Noah blindness, and that is the disease that we have where you mistake friend from foe. The people of Noah look at Noah and see friend when he is not their friend. And they look at Abinadi and they see foe, and yet the reality is they didn't have a better friend than Abinadi. And so here's the sad reality to those who have Noah blindness, that burn your Abinadis, that can't see that your Abinadis are your friends, and you burn them, or you burn the relationship you have. We see this with teenagers who look at their parents and say, you're not my friend, you're my enemy, and they burn their relationship with their parents, and they think that their friends, who they call their friends, are their real friends, but they're really not. And so here kind of is the sad reality of Noah blindness. Chapter 19 of Mosiah, Gideon comes to discover who Noah really is, and Gideon's going to destroy him, because that's what you do to enemies that are an enemy to the people. And so Gideon shows up to destroy King Noah. They fight for a while. They get up on the tower. They see the Lamanites coming to attack. Uh, King Noah says, you know, you got to let me go because they won't follow anyone but me, which is a sad reality. So Gideon lets him go. So watch what their friend says to them. The first command from their friend, so verse 9, the king commanded that the people should flee before the Lamanites. 
So they turn to their friend, and their friend says, run. But the Lamanite army is going to be much faster than these families, and they're going to catch up to them. The Lamanites did pursue them and did begin to overtake them. So now verse 11 comes the command. The king commanded that they should leave their wives and their children and flee before them. And some of them said, no, for some of them, that was the moment that woke them up and they realized that Noah was not their friend. Some of them stay. Others do exactly what he said and they leave. They leave their women and their children and follow their friend into the wilderness. And there comes a moment of clarity in that wilderness. Verse 19, they swear with an oath that they're going to return And if their wives and their children are slain, they will seek revenge. So there must have been a moment of clarity where they said, wait a minute, what have we done? What have I done? And that happens so often to Noah blind people. They wake up one day and they say, what have I done? They've gotten themselves into an addiction or they've they've left their family or they've done something. And all of a sudden they have this moment of clarity where they wake up and they say, what have we done? Now verse 20, the king commanded that they should not return. And for the first time, the blinders come off, and they see who he really was. This man that they thought was their friend all along, and now the blinders come off. One of the cruel realities of Lucifer is once he gets those Noah blinders on our eyes, he lifts them off just as we fall into captivity. And they see who the king really is, and they burn him. They are angry with the king and they burn him in the wilderness. Now, let's set the stage here. They've burned Abinadi, who was there to save them. They've left their women and their children to be devoured by the Lamanites. Now, luckily, they weren't. Luckily, the Lamanites have mercy on them, but they've walked away from I mean, can you imagine that conversation? How's it going to go when your husband shows up who left you to be devoured by the Lamanites? They've burned so many relationships, and then just at the last minute, the blinders come off, and they see who Noah really is, and this is a sad tragedy. One of the defining scriptures is chapter 19, verse 8, where Noah sees the Lamanites and says, I got to save my people, and then this verse, the king was not so much concerned about his people as he was about his own life. It's all about him. That's the reality of the Noahs. They are not your friend. But unfortunately, the people who usually come to realize that late have burned all sorts of Abinadites in their life, and then they're left with charred remains of friendships and relationships because they burned them when they had their blinders on. So you begin to see the structure of Mosiah. So Benjamin's message is how to prevent Noah blindness. Now that you can see the tragedy that it is, Benjamin's message is how to prevent Noah blindness. Abinadi's message is how to take the blinders off. So now we're going to start to focus on a new message, and that is Alma's message. Alma's message is a message of healing. If you have ever been Noah blind, if you ever burned an Abinadi or a relationship, or maybe your relationship with God, Alma's message is for you. Alma once wore Noah blinders. Alma once thought Noah was his friend. But luckily, the teachings of Abinadi pulled those blinders off. So now is the healing part. How do you find healing after you've burned Abinadi, after you've burned the relationship with your friends, your real friends? 
Let's go to chapter 18. And what you're going to find is a beautiful little pattern here. First focus on God, then focus on following a prophet, and then focus on living the gospel. So God, his servants, and his way of life. And that's kind of the crux of chapter 18. Fix your relationship with God, listen to inspired leaders, and then live the gospel. That's how you heal from Noah blindness. So if you go through the contents of chapter 18, you'll find make and keep covenants with God. So starting in verse 7, he did teach them and did preach unto them repentance, redemption, and faith. And there's the cure. Ready? That's how you cure the mistakes that you've made. Repentance, redemption, and faith. A lot of times too, Bryce, we got to do verse 1. We got to get out of their presence. That's a great sight. Like That's in a, a great insight. Like in Alcoholics Anonymous, one of the things they say is you got to disassociate yourselves from some of that negative stuff going on, right? Yeah. You got to get to the waters of Mormon. Because if he's hanging out with Noah, this isn't happening. Yeah. So now, starting in verse 7, he talks about repentance, redemption, and faith. So what is it? How do you reconnect with God? If you've ever broken that relationship with Heavenly Father, what do you do? Well, it all starts in verse 8 with what's in your heart. What is in your heart? If you are desirous, you got to want the relationship back. It starts with a desire. Then you will show that desire by, and there's this beautiful list, coming into the fold, being called as people, bearing one another's burdens, willing to mourn with those that mourn, comfort those that stand in need of comfort, bear witness of God. Verse 10, if this is your desire... Make a covenant with God. Now, the beautiful thing about that covenant is the Lord always offers us a do-over. The Lord is so willing. I love what's about to happen because Alma has been baptized. He can't be baptized. He's been baptized. He's going to baptize Helam, but watch what he does when he baptizes Helam. Verse 10, if this is the desire of your heart, if you want to change, if you want to do-over, if you want to fix what's broken— If that's what's in your heart, then be baptized as a witness that you will make a covenant that you will serve and keep his commandments. So the way to start over again is to renew a covenant with God, which is why we take the sacrament, and that's why those who aren't members of the church who want to start a new life with God get baptized, and baptized members have the opportunity to partake of the sacrament. But it comes back to what is your desire? Is your desire to renew that covenant? So Helam steps up and says, that's what I want. That's my desire. I want to be baptized. So he says the baptismal prayer, which is different than our prayer. And then he baptizes Helam. But this time, he buries himself in the water. Now, let's be clear doctrinally. Alma is not baptizing himself. You don't do that in the kingdom of God. He is not. Alma has been baptized. There's several verses that says that he had authority. So he had already been baptized. But he buries himself in the water as an act of contrition, as as an act of humility, as an act of, Lord, I want to be clean. I want to show you that I'm all in. I haven't been in the past, but I'm all in. If ever there's something in the Scriptures that encapsulates how we should take the sacrament, it's that moment. 
the desire that Alma had when he buried himself in the water is exactly the feeling we should have when we partake of the sacrament. Do-overs are possible. God grants them freely. All we have to do is be willing to change and to show that willingness with a covenant. We should partake of the sacrament every single week with the earnestness that a repentant Alma buried himself in the water with. That's how you get a do-over. You desire one with all your soul, and you say, Lord, I've made some mistakes in the past. This Alma has done some pretty serious things, but he wants to start over, and that's where it starts. If you need to see your bishop, see your bishop. If you need to bow down and tell Heavenly Father you've made some mistakes, then do it. It starts when you want the relationship with God that you once had. And I just love this moment where Alma buries himself in the water because that's how you get a do-over. Lord, I want to start over. I want to be clean. Now notice the very end of verse 10. The way you'll measure that do-over is if you make covenants, you'll be washed clean and the Lord will pour out his spirit more abundantly upon you. And after Alma and Helaman were buried in the water, what happens at the end of verse 14? They were filled with the spirit. That's the Lord saying, do-over granted. Make better decisions this time. I can't believe how willing the Lord is to grant us a do-over. I think that's also one of the signs that you're on the right track. Yeah. When you're feeling the Spirit and you're being motivated by the Spirit and the Spirit's moving upon you, I think it's a great way to know that, you know, I'm not perfect, but I'm on the path. And if the last time you remember feeling the Spirit was on your mission and you're 50, maybe maybe get on the path, right? So we got to be thinking about those kind of things, don't we? Yeah, get the Holy Ghost. That's how you measure the do-over. That's how you measure the Lord has cleaned the slate and has given you a new chance. And he's so quick, he's so willing to do that. But I think if, if Alma becomes the litmus test, if Alma is the measuring stick, then maybe we ought to do it more earnestly. We ought to yearn more for that Holy Ghost. We ought to feel the way Alma felt when he buried himself in that water. Lord, I've made some mistakes. I want to do over. And so he buries himself. He gets the Holy Ghost. That's a beautiful moment. I think that sets us on the path of a new life, is wanting one, making covenants, getting cleansed by the Lord, and then you start your new life. I think that earnestness that you speak of, Bryce, also is manifest later when Alma and his people are put under the burdens, and they ask to be delivered, and the Lord doesn't give it to them right away. Yeah, right? we're doing that. We'll do that in chapter 24. And so they're okay because they are earnest and they do believe. They just submit. Submit cheerfully I like with that. patience and, to all the will of the Lord. And that's a sign, isn't it? That's it a is. sign. If you're willing to be submissive and, hey, whatever the Lord says, I'll do. I think that's a sign of you're going to be okay. I once—this is a long time ago, but I once worked with a man who was— excommunicated from the church. I don't think we say excommunicated anymore, but I think I can historically. And he wanted to come back into the church, and it wasn't time yet, according to the people that made the decisions. And I'll never forget, he was just so humble, and he said, hey, if it, if if it's not time, then it's not time, but I'm going to continue to to stay on the path and live the gospel. And he was just so humble about it. And I remember walking out of that experience thinking, 
he's on the path. He he wants to do the right thing, and if it's not time, it's not time, but he's going to keep doing what's right. And I thought, man, I, I want to be humble like that guy. And I really see that they're, they're kind of in that state, aren't they, where they're trying to do what's right, and yet Amulon and the wicked priest of Noah got them later in, the, in that later chapter in subjection, which kind of lends to this. Have you ever met somebody who maybe they made bad decisions and then they repented, and they're, they're on the right path, but they're still being haunted by their past. And that's a sad commentary on Noah blindness, and hence the need to prevent Noah blindness, which is why we spent so much time on Benjamin's talk, to prevent Noah blindness, because one of the sad realities is when you are Noah blind and you burn your Abinadi's, if you come back, if you take the blinders off and you repent, unfortunately, we often pay dearly for the mistakes of our past. Wouldn't you say that Satan likes to remind you like, oh, well, Bryce, you've repented, but wait, remember when you did this. That's right. And I think we've all made those mistakes. And for me, what works is I just tell the devil to go away. And I just say, I'm going to focus on the Savior's power of redemption. I think the, the adversary is a master at what I call the switch. Before we make the mistake, the adversary is like, oh, you can repent. The Lord's merciful. And then as soon as you make it, he's like, you will never be enough. That's right. And I think Amulon's kind of f- fulfilling that role of the adversary as a type of, you know, pointing out your fault. And I think as human beings, we're really good at this, aren't we? At pointing out other people's faults. I see this sometimes on social media posts where somebody will accomplish something and then the naysayers will come out and say, oh, but he did this when he was in high school or, yeah. or she did that. And, and they point out the negative. And I think we are so good as a species at just tearing each other apart. Yep. If you made one mistake 30 years ago, then you, you need to pay the consequences for the rest of your life. Yeah. So I, I like how you talked about how Alma is this, okay, so I made a mistake, or in Alma's case, maybe it was years of mistakes, but now what? Yeah. Now, going back to chapter 18, watch how the Lord sets this up. If you make a covenant, if you want to show the Lord the same earnestness, the same desire that Alma had, here's how it will manifest itself. Starting in about verse 21, there's this absolute beautiful list of gospel living. Here's how you manifest to the Lord your desire for a do-over. So starting in verse 21, there should be no contention that you should look forward with one eye, notice the unity here, one eye, one faith, one baptism, knit together in unity and in love one towards another. One of the best ways to show the Lord a desire for a do-over, for a clean slate, for a chance to do it right this time, is the way you now treat other people. And you can pretty much tell who isn't serious about their covenants by those who don't treat other people kindly. It manifests our heart by how we treat other people. Verse 23, how do you respond to God's commandments? Do you keep a Sabbath day holy? And I love verse the end of verse 23, what seems to be the main point of keeping the Sabbath day holy? To give him thanks. You are showing God your desire for a clean slate by being grateful for all that he has done for you and his love, and for the atonement of his son. And so again, do you see how all these things flow and bring that clean slate? Verse 24, if you're a priest, you should labor with your own hands because you're no better than anyone else. Verse 25, there was one day set apart that they should gather together. Uh, Verse 27, they did impart of their substance, everyone that had. And if you didn't have, then bless you, you'll receive. Verse 29, walk uprightly, imparting one another both temporally and spiritually. 
In other words, do you see the structure of chapter 18? Alma has been a bad guy. He's been a sinful person. But the blinders have come off, and he wants to change. So his desire changes. He makes covenants. He shows how much he wants to make a covenant. And then the last part of chapter 18 is, how do you live your life? How do you live your life? Because the way you treat other people will manifest your desire for God to give you a second chance. All right, that's chapter 18. Mike, I know you wanted to say something about comfort those that stand in need of comfort. Yeah. When Alma says, stand as witnesses of God and comfort those that stand in need of comfort, the word has deep roots. And I think Alma knows this. And I think this is like another level of code to the Book of Mormon. So John 14, 26. The Book of John is written in Greek. The Book of Mormon is not written in Greek, but... The translators that take this word out of John fourteen twenty six, I think they're doing something here that I think is significant. And I think this has to do with taking Heavenly Father's kids home. I kind of like it. So John fourteen twenty six says this, But the Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance, whatsoever I have said unto you. And the, the notion in John 14 is Jesus is with his disciples, and he says, Guys, I'm leaving you but I'm going to give you the comforter. And the Greek word is parakletos, which is to stand beside or to call beside. So para is beside and kalein is to call. And so it's, it's like an advocate. It's like somebody who's standing next to you. And I like that as a description of the Holy Ghost. Like he stands beside you. He, he's called forth and he comforts us. The word comfort is Latin. It's fortis, which is strength. Calm, which is comforter in, in late Latin, to strengthen or to, to have this fort with you or this strength with you. This is an interesting take on the word comforter from Donna Nielsen. She wrote a really awesome book called Beloved Bridegroom. And I just really love this quote. She says, So the Holy Spirit is the person through whom there comes to us the strength and grace of God to enable us to cope with life. Certainly part of this work is to comfort, but only part. To call the Holy Spirit the comforter and to stop there is to have a limited and rather sentimental view of the Spirit, whereas in the Greek, the word is full of power and of the promise of the God-given ability to face and to master any situation in life. How then did the word comforter get into the English translation of the Bible, she asks. It came in with Wycliffe around 1386, and it stayed there ever since. But in the days of Wycliffe, it was a perfect translation. The word comfort is derived from the Latin word fortis, which means brave. And originally the word meant someone who puts courage into you. Let us take two other examples in Wycliffe. Wycliffe translates Ephesians 6.10 as, Be ye comforted in the Lord. And he translates 1 Timothy 1.12 as, I do thanksgiving to him who comforted me. In both cases, the Greek word is endunamon, which is the root of dunamis, which is power, from which the word dynamite comes from. In Wycliffe's day, to comfort a person was to fill that person with a power like spiritual dynamite. The Holy Spirit doesn't just simply come and wipe our tears away. He gives us dynamic power to cope with life. I really like that. I really like this idea that the Spirit fills us with spiritual dynamite. For me, one of the manifestations of the Spirit is if I get really excited about something and I feel like I can do it, I feel like, man, this is really awesome. There have been times, and I'm sure you've had this in your life, Bryce, where you have to do something really, really hard and you pray and you're like, I can do this, even though like it's a hard thing. 
Courage and confidence are one of the great manifestations of the Holy Ghost. Sometimes we think answers are the only way the Holy Ghost speaks, is when He answers a question we have. But feelings of peace, strength, courage, confidence, I just think the more we begin to realize that that is a manifestation of the Holy Ghost, courage to do hard things, confidence, bravery, those are manifestations of the Holy Ghost. I really like that. Bear with me, listeners. This is going to be a little bit of a journey on this word, but I want to take you to Isaiah 40. And Isaiah sometimes is called the comforting prophet because he's doing this so much. But look at Isaiah 40, and the English is really clunky, so we're going to get into like what it's saying outside of the English translation. So Isaiah 40, verse 1, "'Comfort ye, comfort ye, my people, saith your God.'" The word is, you know, the, remember when Ishmael dies and they bury him, and they bury him in a place called Nahum? So that's the word comfort. It's, I mean, if, we were, if I was saying it right, it was Neham, but we don't speak that way in America. But that word means to comfort, but it also means to like breathe heavily or to console. But it has lots of other meanings, and one of them has to do with taking them home, coming back into God's presence. And so grammatically, what's going on here is we have a person, and it's God. We don't know which God it is in verse 1 of Isaiah 40, but I really do believe this, you guys. When Alma says, stand as witnesses of God and comfort those that stand in need of comfort, I think it's more than just bring over a casserole. I think those are important, right? If, if something bad happens, we bring over a casserole. But I think the word has deep roots in Isaiah, and I think Alma knows this. And I think this is like another level of code to the Book of Mormon. So, comfort ye, comfort ye, my people, saith your God. Speak ye comfort, comfortably to Jerusalem, and cry unto her that her warfare is accomplished, that her iniquity is pardoned. For she hath received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. The notion here is that this is God speaking to Jerusalem after the destruction of the temple. After they've been in exile, they get to come back. And God says, you've paid your dues. You've paid your sentence. Now you can come home. Now think about this in context of everything we're doing with Alma. I mean, just to me, like, once again, this is pretty cool. So then verse 3, the voice of him that crieth in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be exalted, and every mountain and hill shall be made low. Bryce, will you talk about verse 4, about what it means? We're not talking about geography, are we? No, we're talking about repentance is getting Jesus back into your life. And Isaiah and John, that was John's main message. John came preaching repentance, and then he said, prepare ye the way of the Lord. Every mountain shall be brought low. Repentance is the act of getting the mountain you created between you and God and tearing it down. That's beautiful. And so every time, you know, when my Noah blinders were on or where I, where I forgot the greatness of God and I thought that I was great or that Noah was great and I burned my Abinadi, I created this mountain between me and God. Repentance is the simple act of tearing that mountain down. Or maybe I created a valley between me and God, or maybe I made the path really, really crooked. Jesus can't run into my life because I've put obstacles in the way. Repentance is the simple act of getting the obstacle down. Uh, Brilliant Stephen Robinson, who wrote Believing Christ and a follow-up book, tells the story about his son. He only had one son. He's kind of hard on his son. And one day he marched his son to his room to time out and said, don't you dare get out. The son had done something very offensive to the father. 
He says, you stay in this room until I come and get you. Well, then he forgot about his son. Hours go by. He hears footsteps coming down the hall and starting to come down the stairs, and he runs to the stairs, and there's his son with a tear-stained face, and he looks up and says, Daddy, can't we ever be friends again? Now, you tell me what that little boy just did to the mountain that he created between him and his father. Remember, this is he had done something that really angered Brother Robinson, and yet, Daddy, can't we ever be friends again? You tell me what that man did. He didn't turn his back on that boy. He ran up those stairs, didn't he? Total commitment. He ran up those stairs because you know what that boy did? He took the mountain that was between them, and he pulled it down. That's how you get your do-over. That's exactly what we're talking about. You tear the mountain down. Whatever you did that pushed Jesus away, you open the path. And I love that. It's really not about ripping out physical mountains. It's about our relationships. And so what I want you to think about, you the listener, is I want you to look at this as counsel, the pre-earth counsel. So in the first uh, verse, comfort ye, comfort ye, my people, saith your God. That's a second person plural imperative. And what that means is this. This is whoever's speaking in verse 1 is speaking to you all. That's second person plural, and it's an imperative. It's go comfort my people. Now, scholars don't know who this is. The assumption for years was, well, perhaps this is Yahweh. But then we have this really interesting verse, verse 3, which throws everything up in a tizzy. Verse 3 says, The voice of him that crieth in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord. That's not the same speaker. So we have two beings in a heavenly council. One says, go do this. And the other one is a separate person. These are plural divine beings. And in scholarship, there's a lot of ink spilled on this going, what's going on? As a Latter-day Saint who understands a little bit about the pre-earth life, I have no problem with this. So I'm going to give you what I call my Mike Day packaging of this. I'm responsible for my interpretation. But in my interpretation of Isaiah 40, I think it falls right in line with our doctrine, our understanding of God, and also our understanding of exactly what's going on in Alma 18 with Alma. So here it is. First, I'm going to read some of the scholarship. Scholars have recognized the grammatical nuances of Isaiah 40, 1 through 5. In verse 1, a speaker commands someone to comfort my people, the people of Jerusalem, which suggests that the speaker is Yahweh. But then we get into this identity of the recipients of the command. We don't know who the, the recipients are, at least in scholarship. One of my favorite scholars is a guy by the name of Frank Moore Cross, and he says that we have a series of unusual and active imperatives in the plural here. The plural imperatives here are, are given to these people, and the recipients of the commands have perplexed translators and scholars alike. For example, in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the vocative plural masculine goes to priests. That's the, the word for Greek is eres, which is the priests. Um, but that's not in the Hebrew. So the Targums, the Targums are a group of texts that were written around the first century. And the reason why they were written is because he, the Hebrew language was spoken less and less. And so people would go to synagogue and you had to have somebody read it in Hebrew and then package it. It's kind of like podcasting in the first century, right? They would read it and everyone's like, I don't know what this says. And then they would give you their interpretation. And then these interpretations became Targums and there were a bunch of them and they were written down. Well, in the first century Targums, the recipients of this command are prophets, but we don't know who they are, at least in scholarship. So one another famous scholar, his name is Michael Heiser. 
He says that the plural suffixes and imperatives provide evidence that the commands are, quote, issued to an unseen audience and require actions that cannot be fulfilled by earthly addressees. And then he goes on, and, and I will post these in the show notes. My point, here's what I, here's what I think is happening. You have the father in the pre-earth life, and he's giving a command, and he says, comfort my people. And you have a second speaker in verse three. That could be the son. That could be another divine being that says, let's prepare the way. Let's make a way to bring our kids home. And that really is central to the message of Mosiah. We're bringing Alma and his people home, and Alma saying we need to comfort those that stand in need of comfort. And that word is kind of used as a code word throughout the second part of Isaiah. So for example, in Isaiah 49, verse 13, it says this, Sing, O heavens, and be joyful, O earth, and break forth into singing, O mountains, for the Lord hath comforted his people and will have mercy upon his afflicted. But Zion said, The Lord hath forsaken me, and my Lord hath forgotten me. Can a woman forget her suckling child, that she should not have compassion on the son of her womb? Yea, they may forget, yet I will not forget thee. Over and over again in Isaiah, there is this, this message of comfort, bringing the children home. Verse 3 of Isaiah 51, the Lord will comfort Zion. He will comfort all her waste places, and he will make her wilderness like Eden. In 51.12 of Isaiah, I, even I, am he that comforteth you. Who art thou that should be afraid of a man that shall die, and the son of man which shall be made as grass? And then the Lord says, you know, I've laid the foundations of the, of the world in verse 13, and then in 14, I'm going to bring back the captive exiles. Over and over again, this is in the 52nd chapter, which we talked about last podcast. It's in the 61st chapter, verse 2 of Isaiah, and it's in 66, 13, twice. Think of the Savior standing by your side, taking you home. This is the Greek connotation of the word used as comforter in John fourteen twenty six to stand beside. It connotes strengthening, coronating as king or queen in heaven and God's kingdom. It denotes temple theology. Alma is tying Isaiah 40 and the message to the council, the people in the council, that's us, with the fact that we're making this covenant. Think about this. This is about us. We're to take all of God's children home, and that includes the temple, administering comfort to those that mourn in the desert of the mortal experience. We're living in this desert, this mortal experience that just is so full of pain, and we've covenanted with God that we're going to bring his children home. And it reminds me of a quote by Elder John Woodso, where he said this, talking about the pre-earth council. He said, in our pre-existent state, in the day of the great council, we made certain agreements with the Almighty. The Lord proposed a plan conceived of by him, and we accepted it. Since the plan is intended for all men, we became parties to the salvation of every person under the plan. We agreed right then and there to be not only saviors for ourselves, but measurably saviors for the whole human family. We went into a partnership with the Lord. The working out of the plan became not merely the Father's work and the Savior's work, but also our work. The least of us, the humblest, is in partnership with the Almighty in achieving the purpose of the eternal plan of salvation. That places us in a very responsible attitude towards the human race. By that doctrine, with the Lord at the head, we become saviors on Mount Zion, all committed to the plan of offering salvation to the untold numbers of spirits. To do this is the Lord's self-imposed duty. This labor is highest glory. 
Likewise, it is man's duty, self-imposed, his pleasure and joy, his labor, and ultimately his glory. So to me, when I read Alma 18 to comfort those that stand in need of comfort, it, it brings to my mind this message in Isaiah 40. It's to me so plain as a Latter-day Saint, understanding that there's the Father, and he says, bring my children home. And then the third verse of Isaiah 40, the Lord says, let's do this. And we all took part in this. And I love that biblical scholars understand the, the grammar, and they understand the syntax of the verses, and they understand that it's a second-person plural imperative, and they understand that, okay, there's lots going on here, and then they just debate, you know, what is this? And to me as a Latter-day Saint with the Book of Mormon and the Restoration, I say, boy, Isaiah's a lot plainer once we have the doctrine squared up. And this is what Alma's doing. He's reminding us that we're to do this. And so to me, that word comfort is a code word. Let's bring God's children home. And in the words of Elder Wood, so we promised him we would do this. And in so doing, we become like Jesus in a little way. And by doing that, we become redeemed. And we have comfort as we administer it. And so that's that's something I just wanted to share with that word and how it relates to coming home and how Alma uses it. And I really do think Alma is working with Isaiah 40 here. He understands the pre-earth life and what prophets do and what his role is. Now, speaking of bringing our kids home, that now becomes the very message of the rest of Mosiah. It's absolutely beautiful how this book is put together. Exactly. So Alma says, I want a do-over, Lord. I want the Holy Ghost back in my life. I need you. And he gets the Holy Ghost. And then the very next thing that happened, you see how all of this weaves together into a beautiful message? Let's come back home. So in two stories, back-to-back stories, a lost people that it seems impossible is going to make it back home. Now, let me take you back, if you don't mind, flipping back to the very first chapter of the Book of Mormon. Let me, let me read you the very first chapter, last verse, promise. As if the Lord is setting up this book to say, here is the message of this book. Ready? Last verse of 1 Nephi chapter 1. I'm going to jump to the middle of the verse. I, Nephi, will show unto you that the tender mercies of the Lord are over all those whom he hath chosen because of their faith to make them mighty even unto the power of deliverance. Lehi was delivered from his enemies in Jerusalem. Nephi was delivered from his brethren. His family was delivered from the sea. This book is a story of deliverance against all odds. And those of you who feel like you face a formidable foe and that you don't know what to do, here's the message. Have faith and trust in God. So the rest of this story is about their deliverance. Let's go to chapter 21, verse 5. There was no way that they could deliver themselves out of their hands, meaning out of the hands of the Lamanites, because the Lamanites had surrounded them on every side. If you ever get in that situation where you just don't think there's any way out, this is where you trust in God. This is where you have to notice in um, 13, 14, so I'm still in chapter 21, 13, 14, 15, they humbled themselves even into the dust, subjecting themselves to the yoke of bonds, submitting themselves Verse 14, humble themselves even into the depths of humility and cry mightily to God. This is where you say, Lord, I can't do this without your help. I can't get out of this mess without your help, but here I am praying for it. And I love, I love verse 15 
Oh, no, it's verse 16. Sometimes help doesn't come immediately. Notice in verse 16, they prosper by degrees. So sometimes we just hold on. Sometimes we just, it gets a little bit better, and then it gets a little bit better, and then it gets a little bit better, because the Lord is with us the whole time. But what the real story here is, they are surrounded on all four sides, and ultimately with Ammon, they're going to escape into the wilderness. So why couldn't they do that at any point? They get the guards drunk on one side, and as soon as the guards are drunk, they escape they could have done that all along. So, people, you know, sometimes I ask myself, well, why couldn't they have saved themselves all along? The reality is they didn't know where to go. So they get the guards drunk and they escape. So they run out into the wilderness and then go where? They don't know where to go. And so the beauty of this first story is that the Lord sent Ammon. And I love in verse 22 when they make the plans and they get the guards drunk and then they escape... Verse 11, they found Zarahemla, why? Being led by Ammon. So one way the Lord gets us out of deliverance is he sends someone or something into our life that delivers us. When you think there's no way out, quite often the Lord sends you and Ammon. And and maybe it takes a while. Maybe you have to prosper by degrees. Maybe the deliverance doesn't come right away. So you just trust the Lord, you submit to the Lord, you trust his hand, and then gradually comes deliverance. In Alma's case, though, it's really hard. They're in a hard situation. If you'll go to chapter 24, Amulon catches up to them, puts tasks, verse 10, came to pass that so great were their afflictions that they began to cry mightily to God. And Amulon commanded that they should stop their cries, and he put guards over them, and he put taskmaster. He wouldn't let them pray. But the Lord comes to them, and some of my favorite verses in all of the Book of Mormon are the message of the Lord to Alma when it's really, really difficult. Verse 13, it came to pass that the voice of the Lord came to them in their affliction, saying, lift up your heads and be of good comfort. And to all of you who seem to be outnumbered and outweighed, especially in this COVID-19 captivity we seem to be in, some of you have lost jobs and employment, some of you have lost people, loved ones to the virus or to other situations, and it just seems like we're outnumbered and we just are never going to win this fight. The voice of the Lord came and said, lift up your heads and be of good comfort. I know of the covenant which you have made, and I will covenant with my people and will deliver them out of bondage. Again, it may not come immediately. Maybe he prospers us by degrees. I love what he does in this case. Verse 14, I will ease the burdens which are put upon your shoulders that even you cannot feel them upon your backs, even while you are in bondage. And this will I do, that ye may stand as witnesses of me hereafter, that ye may know of a surety that I, the Lord, do visit my people in their afflictions. And now it came to pass that the burdens which were laid upon Alma and his brethren were made light, not because the burden was taken away, but because the Lord strengthened their backs to hold it. The Lord did strengthen them that they could bear up their burdens with ease. It's a spiritual gift to be able to go through this, and the Lord is to strengthen us, but we still go through it. Kind of reminds me of Elder Bednar, his talk in The Strength of the Lord, where he talked about Dan Jones stranded in Wyoming, and they run out of game. They're at this fort, and they have to hold it over winter. Remember that story? And 
just imagine you're just you're surrounded by snow. You can't get out. You're kind of out of food. And Dan Jones writes in his journal. He says the game became so scarce that we could kill nothing. We ate all the poor meat we had. One would get hungry just eating it. Finally, with everything about gone, nothing was left but hides, just the hides of these animals. And he says, we made a trial of them. A lot was cooked and eaten and without any seasoning, and it made the whole company sick. Many were so turned against the stuff that it made them sick to think of it. Things looked dark, for nothing remained but the poor raw hides taken from starved cattle. We asked the Lord to direct us what to do. So instead of praying for a pizza delivery guy, instead of praying, they're like, tell us what to do, Lord. The brethren did not murmur, but felt to trust in God. We, we cooked the hide, and after soaking and scraping the hair off until it was soft, then we ate it all, glue and all. This made it rather inclined to stay with us longer than we desired. Finally, I was impressed on how to fix the stuff and gave the company advice, telling them how to cook it. For them to scorch and scrape off the hair, this had a tendency to kill and purify the bad taste the scalding gave it. After scraping, boil one hour in plenty of water and throw away the water, which had extracted all the glue, then wash and scrape the hide thoroughly, washing it cold water and boil to a jelly till I could get it cold and eat it with a little sugar sprinkled on it. This was considerable trouble, but we had little else to do, and it was better than starving. Dan Jones, 40 years among the Indians. And then Elder Bednar goes on, but he just says, I, I like where he says this, All that I have read thus far is in preparation for the next line from Dan Jones' journal, he says. It illustrates how those pioneer saints may have known something about the enabling power of the atonement that we, in our prosperity and ease, are not as quick to understand. And this is the quote. He says, we ask the Lord to bless our stomachs and adapt them to this food. My dear brothers and sisters, he says, I know what I would have prayed for in those circumstances. I would have prayed for something else to eat. Heavenly Father, give me some quail or buffalo. It would have never occurred to me to pray that my stomach would be strengthened and adapted to what we already had. What did Dan Jones know? He knew about the enabling power of the atonement of Christ. He didn't pray that his circumstances would be changed. He prayed that he would be strengthened to deal with with his circumstances. And I think that Bryce is a really good lesson here that, you know, they are not getting out of this right, right away. And sometimes it just is hard. And sometimes we prosper by degrees and sometimes he just bears our burdens. He, He strengthens our backs so that we bear our burdens. And I just, I love that verse. The Lord did strengthen them that they could bear up their burdens with ease. And they did submit cheerfully and with patience to all the will of the Lord. It's that heart right. It's that trust in God. And then strength comes. I wanted to read this story from uh, Elder Holland about Katie Lewis. He said, Katie Lewis is my neighbor. Her father, Randy, is my bishop. Her mother, Melanie, is a saint. And her older brother, Jimmy, is battling leukemia. Sister Lewis recently recounted for me the unspeakable fear and grief that came to their family when Jimmy's illness was diagnosed. She spoke of the tears and the waves of sorrow that any mother would experience with a prognosis as grim as Jimmy's was. But like the faithful Latter-day Saints they are, the Lewises turned to God with urgency and with faith and with hope. They fasted and prayed, prayed and fasted, and they went again and again to the temple— One day, Sister Lewis came home from a temple session, weary and worried, feeling the impact of so many days and nights, of fear being held at bay only by monumental faith. 
As she entered her home, four-year-old Katie ran up to her with love in her eyes and a crumpled sheaf of paper in her hands. Holding the paper up to her mother, she said enthusiastically, Mommy, do you know what these are? Sister Lewis said frankly her first impulse was to deflect Katie's zeal and say she didn't feel like playing just then. But she thought of her children, all her children, and the possible regret of missed opportunities and little lives that passed too swiftly. So she smiled through her sorrow and said, No, Katie, I don't know what they are. Please tell me. They're the scriptures, Katie beamed back. And do you know what they say? Sister Lewis stopped smiling, gazed deeply at this little child, knelt down to her level and said, Tell me, Katie, what do the scriptures say? They say, Trust Jesus. And then she was gone. Sister Lewis said that as she stood back up holding a fistful of four-year-old scribblings, she felt near tangible arms of peace encircle her weary soul and a divine stillness calm her troubled heart. Those are the tender mercies that Nephi promised. If we will trust God, if we will submit cheerfully and with patience to all the will of the Lord— He will prosper us by degrees until the day of deliverance comes, or he will strengthen our backs so that we can bear the burden laid upon it. I also think sometimes we're not delivered. In other words, our loved ones die, but the comfort, this person that stands beside is with us. He's our advocate. Both Bryce and I, we've lost parents. Uh, We've had parents die. Um, speaking at my mom's funeral, I felt that comfort, even though she wasn't there. I felt something. I I don't know how to describe it other than it was the spirit to help me kind of get through that. And I really do think that sometimes people don't make it. We don't know if all 200 people with, with Alma make it or not. We just don't know. And the bottom line is everybody, we all lose people. That's part of the deal. But even that's only temporary. Right. If you see with a divine eye, if you see from a big perspective... They go into another room for a few minutes, and then you go into the same room, and then pretty soon we all come out of the room. In the end, we all make it home. We all are saved. So Limhi's people make it safely back to Zarahemla. Alma makes it safely back to Zarahemla. No group that got lost in Mosiah stays lost forever. But there's, all, there's a common thread here. They all turn to the Lord. There's a connection between their coming home and their humility, and their turning to the Lord. And I think one of the great lessons we learn from the book of Mosiah is, if you will turn to God, if you will repent and submit to Him, if you will trust Him, the day will come, whether it's today or tomorrow, the day will come where He will bring you home, and all of us will be delivered from our challenges. And that kind of brings us to the end of our block. Next, we will do Mosiah 25 to the end. We're going to get back to Zarahemla and watch the church get established, and then we're going to make this transition from a monarchy to a system of judges, and we're going to learn some principles about government that we need to take personally in our lives today. The rest of Mosiah is wonderful. And we're going to be introduced to Alma's son, which we get to learn a whole other lesson from that man. Yes, we do. So with that, we thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. Talking Scripture is not an official production of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. 
the opinions expressed in this podcast are Mike and Bryce's opinions only. We refer you to official church sources and the church website to clarify any doctrinal questions.